But we're going to focus today on verses 5 through 8. And this is a second voice, a second thing that John hears. The first is a declaration, a great declaration, a voice out of heaven, just like that voice from heaven that declared blunt truth to those standing by in the New Testament. This is my beloved Son, in Him whom I have well pleased. This is my beloved Son, hear Him. I will both glorify and do it again, the voice from heaven. But now we have a personal exhortation. John doesn't just hear a voice. He hears God, the one who sits on the throne, speaking to him. Verse 4 is where we left off last week. The former things are passed away. Praise God. Now, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, This is John writing, an eyewitness testimony. Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, again, an eyewitness testimony. Write to John. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Interesting that that is what Matthew shared with us from Spurgeon's reading this morning. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there today. That great disjunctive conjunction. We're not going to go there today. Oh, we will. We will. In fact, it might take a whole Sunday to talk about the first three words of that verse. Because they're very relevant today. But we're not going to go there today. Let's listen. John gets a personal exhortation from one who speaks from the throne of God. That is God himself. And I see this phrase, unto me, twice here. And what it says loudly is that the God that testifies of these things, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God we worship is not distant and unknowable. He's a personal God. You know, the reason why the God of the Quran, Allah of the Quran, is not Jehovah God of the Bible is very clear. Just read the Quran. Read the testimony of Muhammad himself. The God of the Quran can't be known. He's distant and unknowable. Muhammad's own words testified when he was facing death that he didn't even know where he would go because God, these things couldn't be known. God was unknowable. But that's not the God of the Bible. He's a personal God. He's not distant and unknowable. He reveals himself. It's funny how I hear people refer to the founding fathers, many of them. And I'm not suggesting that all our founding fathers were men without fault or that they were all Bible-believing Christians. We can't know that. We can know their testimonies and we can look at historical records But people often accuse them of being deist. A deist is a popular term that was used to define a philosophy uh, in the 19th century or the 18th and 19th centuries that said that, you know, yeah, there's a God, but he's like a clockmaker. He created all things, he wound it up, and then he left it alone to run on its own, and he's off doing something else. He has no interaction in this creation. It's a very Mormon way of looking at God. You know, the Mormon church teaches that God 
what God, what we are, God once was, and what God is, we can become. Those were Joseph Smith's words in the King Follett Discourse. And so in other words, God was once like us, and he became a God, and then he populated this planet, and he set it on its course, and now he's off doing something else, and now we, need, we have the responsibility to grow up and be like him, and then we can go populate our own worlds. It's a very deist way of thinking. But the founding fathers didn't speak as deist. They didn't speak as those who thought God was distant and involved in something else. They spoke of a personal God. In fact, I quote one of those founding fathers who's often been accused of being a deist or even an atheist on the tract I like to hand out as I'm walking across America. Thomas Jefferson said, and this is etched on the Jefferson Memorial, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and His justice cannot sleep forever. Those aren't the words of the deist. A deist doesn't believe that God is interested in the affairs of men and that He's going to judge them. Jefferson, interestingly, as the President of the United States, he didn't have somebody come in on a day of prayer to pray for the nation like we see even from conservative presidents. You know, on the prayer day, you know, God forbid Trump himself would pray. No, no, but Jefferson did. Jefferson led the country in a prayer on a day of fasting, and he prayed in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You'll never hear that in a history book, but it's written down. So our founding fathers confessed a personal God that held nations accountable and that that ought to, draw, to drive us to him and to trust him for our well-being as a nation, but we turned away from that. But he is a personal God. He does speak to his servants. My question is, does he speak to you? And if he does, are you listening I find a verse in Isaiah fascinating. We've talked about it. Isaiah chapter 30. Here we have a prophetic foreview of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it would be in the New Testament. It's in the context of Messiah that would later come. Verse 15, God's telling about a day, what Israel needs to do in days of judgment. What she needs to do when there's chaos all around. Kind of like the days we're living in. Let's see, this is, uh, am I looking at the right place? Hmm. Okay, yes I am. Look at verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. A lot of times when there's chaos, in hysteria, it's in returning and rest that we can be saved or, or find rest and peace. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. God said, chill out, but Israel would not. And then he goes on to talk about a future day in verse 21 when after God has chastised Israel, they will wake up and... The veil will be removed from their eyes. And he says in verse 21, In thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way. Walk you in it. When you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. So God, speaking of a time when Israel's blindness will be gone and they will be able to hear from the Lord. He'll tell them where to go. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit does if we'll listen. You know, we try to be open to the Holy Spirit's leading as we're walking across America to preach the gospel and warn the nation. I never envisioned that when we got to Catawba County, I originally planned to walk in south of Lake Norman, just go across the bottom of the county, but the Holy Spirit directed otherwise. We've actually done a giant figure eight around the county of Catawba County that will hopefully close maybe this afternoon or tomorrow. I never envisioned that. It, it's not 760 miles from here to Cape Hatteras, but somehow that's what we've walked. But we try to be sensitive to these things to, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to listen to God. He's a personal God and He speaks to us through His Word and in our hearts just like he does to John here, unto me. But there's another sense in which God is a personal God. And my family and I were looking at that this week. Around our breakfast table, we have been slowly but surely surveying the divided monarchy of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the reigns of various kings. And we've gotten to the place where the writing prophets began to arise. Jonah being the first, Joel one of the earliest ones. Joel looked back at a natural, not a nat- I don't like to even say natural disaster, but Joel looked back at a judgment of God as an occasion to call men to repentance. And then we get to Amos who looks forward to a judgment of God as an occasion to call men to repentance. And so in the narrative, we're right there in the reign of Jeroboam the second and the reign of Uzziah, and we've got to stop because there's a whole bunch of prophets coming around. And so we paused in the prophet Amos just to see a few things that the the prophet has said, just try to discuss those as a family. And one of those reminded me of God being a personal God. Turn to Amos chapter 4. In this study in Revelation, I think we have visited every single book of the Bible at least three times. That's funny. Brother Ronnie told me once, well, when you're done with Revelation, will you do the minor prophets for us? And I I don't know if I need to. I think we've gone there enough times in this study. It's already been done. He may not even remember. That's been so long ago. But because God is a personal God, we can hear from Him. We can find direction from Him. But there's another sobering sense here we would do well to remember. In Amos chapter 4, the prophet reminds the people of how God has already judged them. He sent judgments. He's attacked their economy, their ecology, invasion of foreign forces. Yet, it says five different times, yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I can't help but read this chapter and think of our country today. And so finally we get to a point where none of this has worked and God says, therefore, in verse 12, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. God is a personal God. He warns the people. He sends judgment to wake them up. They do not listen. Therefore, because He's a personal God, verse 12, because I will do this unto me, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Because God is a personal God, we can be made right with Him and we can hear from Him. And because He's a personal God, everyone has a meeting with Him. I like to say to folks when, we, when I bridge to the gospel, strangers, I like to say, you know, I don't know if you care about the things of God, but we're all going to meet Him one day. 
We are, because he's a personal God. And that is an incredibly comforting news for some. It is incredibly frightening news for others. God is a personal God. Well, let's look at the text itself here. We see a personal God in verses 5 through 7. He that sat upon the throne. John has seen he that sat upon the throne already in Revelation. Turn to chapter 4, verse 2. This harkens back to the spring of 2013, I think. It might have been in the summer before we got here. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he was caught up to heaven suddenly. A door was opened, and he was caught up. At the end of the letters to the seven churches, he's caught up. It's a picture, a type of the rapture of the church at the precise place it will be at the end of the church age. And he says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. John sees God the Father on the throne. And when you get to chapter 5, verse 13, you see every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, And under the earth, and such as are in the sea, all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So worship is attributed to the one sitting on the throne, that is God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, who is worthy to open the scroll. It's the one on the throne, the Father, that gives the scroll to the Lamb, the Son, and He is is able to open that title deed of the earth. Do you remember back when we talked about this, how I made the claim, or the bold claim, that Revelation 4, verse 11, is the most important verse in the Bible? Not John 3, 16. And that Revelation 5 is the most important chapter in the Bible. A most important verse followed by a most important chapter. Those messages are up there near the beginning, probably around message number 20 or something. I don't know. Go listen to those, those, ver- those, those messages. A most important verse and a most important chapter. Chapter 4, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. Why? Why is God worthy? Why is He the supreme authority? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Guys, that's the center of it all. There is a God. He made all things, and He made them for His pleasure. That's the most important verse in the Bible. That's why Jesus Christ came. That's why we can have salvation through His shed blood, because it's by God's pleasure. God does what pleases Him. We need to understand that God does what pleases Him, not what pleases us. Therefore, we come to God on His terms, not on ours, the way of Cain. We come on His terms, the way of Abel, a blood sacrifice, Jesus the Christ. But God, He that sits on the throne is worthy. He is the Creator. And what He does, He does for His pleasure. We've forgotten that in our modern times. Followed by chapter 5, the most important chapter. Why? Because here we see that there is only one who has authority to claim rule over this world. Only one is worthy to open the title deed of the earth. 
the birthright that Adam gave over to Satan. He paid for it on the cross, and now he comes to claim it. That scroll is the title deed of the earth. And when the Son, the Messiah, begins to open it, then the judgment comes. Let's don't give Satan more power than he has. When the Lamb opens the scroll, Antichrist comes. It's the Lamb that unleashes him. God calls him the rod of my anger. So these are very important truths right here that we must hearken back to as John sees one sitting upon the throne. It's all about God and His authority. It's all about Him. It's not all about us. And there's only one worthy to redeem us and to redeem this planet, and that's the one God has ordained. Just like Paul preached on Mars Hill. God has winked at your ignorance and your foolishness and your idolatry long enough. And now He is calling men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the one He has ordained, the Lamb. But He that sits on the throne is God the Father. Turn back to Revelation 1 verse 11. John sees the exalted Christ. These are the things which have been that he writes down from the outline Jesus gives him in Revelation 1.19. John sees Christ amidst the seven churches. And what does Jesus Christ the Son say in verse 11? He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. So when we get to Revelation 21 there, we see He that sits on the throne, God the Father, saying exactly what God the Son says in Revelation 1. We don't have two entities, God the Father on the throne, and the Lamb as in Revelation 5. We have God all in all. And what do I mean by that? There's only one God. And He's manifest in three persons. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. They're personal. But here we have the culmination. John sees exactly what Paul saw. And I call this the great abdication. John has been transported past the millennium into the ages to come. And he sees God. All in all. The great abdication. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read something Paul says about God's order. Verses 20 through 28. Brother Daniel, will you read that and just give my voice a break here? Verses 15, chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. Now listen, listen, this is God's order of things for the future. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So here Paul describes God's order of things. He sees Jesus Christ from his resurrection all the way till after all of his enemies have been put down and he subjects himself to the Father and God is now all in all. Now keep in mind that all enemies are not put under Christ's feet until after the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. He rules and reigns. And there are consequences in the millennium for those nations that will not heed. And remember, even at the end of the millennium, Satan is able to gather folks up together to try to overthrow his rule. And fire from heaven comes down and those enemies are subjected and destroyed. And then there's the throne where the wicked are judged and cast into a lake of fire, the second death. And those enemies are subjected. Then comes the end, the new heaven and the new earth. And in the new heaven and the new earth, God, Jesus Christ, subjects himself to the Father. That doesn't mean he's any less God. He is God for all eternity. But God is all in all. In other words, there isn't God the Father on his throne in heaven and God the Son walking amongst us on the dusty roads of Galilee as he did in A.D. in the first century. There is God the Father and God the Son as one. They are one, but manifested as one. God all in all. And that's what John sees here because the one on the throne is saying the same things that the Son has said. God, we're at the end, the ages to come, the great abdication when Christ subjects himself and God is all in all. John sees Christ from the resurrection to the great abdication just like Paul. So my point is, the Scriptures agree with themselves. They confirm themselves. That's why John's eyewitness testimony can be trusted. Because it doesn't stand alone. It stands with that of one of the greatest missionaries of all time who hated Christians and was on his way to persecute them and then saw Jesus Christ and learned of Him and preached Him to the ends of the earth. Paul is still hated today. He's hated so much today, and that just tells you he didn't said something right. But God has an order. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The first fruits of the resurrection were the saints that raised up and were seen walking around the city. Then comes the time when um, uh, uh, the harvest, the rapture, and then Christ rules, and He puts all enemies under His feet. And then comes the end. And that, what John is seeing, is God all in all. 
He's looking forward. Or he is able, he's transported forward into what Paul called in the, in the epistle to the Ephesians, the ages to come. We can't even conceive of what God has prepared for us in the ages to come. Verse 5, he that sat on the throne, God all in all, says, behold. I love that word. We don't use it much anymore. I like it in Spanish. I, used, I usually say it when I offer somebody a tract in Spanish. Behold is translated aquí in Spanish. And I like to say, aquí tengo un folleto para usted. Hey, behold, I have a gospel tract for you. It's just, it, it catches people's attention. Behold, I make all things new. You remember, this reminds me of what Jesus said in a parable. He said, you can't put new wine into old wineskins because they will break. You got to put new wine into new wineskins. There's coming a time when God will make all things new. Not in old bottles, but new wine and new wineskins. Everything's new. And creation today, which has fallen, even teaches that. God's only saying here what His creation already teaches. In Job chapter 14, Job in his despair hung on to what he called the hope of a tree. Even the trees teach us one day that all things will be made new, that there will be a resurrection. Job calls this the hope of a tree. Turn to chapter 14 of Job. Man, I thought more kids would be turning in their Bible, turning in their Bibles. I don't hear the pages. This is Bible drill time. Job fourteen. Job can't figure out his sins. He doesn't understand why all this stuff is happening to him. He despairs of life. Is this it for me? And then in chapter fourteen, verse seven, he says, "But or for there is hope of a tree." If it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will blood, it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. Job said, you can cut a tree down, you can knop it off and leave it as an old stump, and it can sit there. But if that water comes around... It can bud and it can become a tree again. It's the hope of a tree. We see it every spring. And then he says in verse 10, But man dieth and wasteth away. Man giveth up the ghost and where is he? So he's asking the question, you know, there's hope of a tree, but we just die. It's not like that with us. Or, as he continues to reason, is it? He goes on in chapter 14, verse 14, and says, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Job says, It, it is so with God's creation. Will it not be so with man? I'm going to wait and see. And then we go, as he begins to process these things and grow in his grace and knowledge, we get to chapter 19. Of Job, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, 
and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That hope of a tree convinces Job that man himself will rise again and all things will be made new. The trees teach us this. Paul spoke of it as a, duh, don't you see? To the Corinthian church, he says, thou fool. Can't you see that unless, that a tree or a seed can't be quickened except it die? Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it can't live again. I mean, creation teaches us that one day all things will be made new. It groans to be made new, Romans 8. Sometimes I think the animals have more sense than the humans. I don't think, you know, that animals are more valuable than humans and all that. That's kind of a backward society. That's what Plato, the philosopher, said. But sometimes animals have more sense than humans because they know their maker and they groan for him. The creation groans. And yet we are lost in our electronics and our distractions. But one day... All will be made new. And if you just stop and look around once in a while and take your face out of your phone, you'll see even creation declaring this glory. Romans, Paul says that for the creation of God declares His power and His Godhead. For the invisible things of Him from the beginning of creation are clearly seen. Even His eternal Godhead and power so that they are without excuse. We don't see God in His creation because we're not looking and we're not listening. But if we'll pause, I'm reminded of what uh, a Russian author from the 18th and early 19th, or the 19th and early 20th century, Leo Tolstoy, uh, he wrote some profound literature. But in his essays, letters, and miscellanies, they called it, he spoke of the men of the 20th century. He had just, he lived the gap, the, he bridged the gap between the 19th and the 20th century. And he said something I've often thought about. If then I were asked for the most important advice I could give, that which I consider to be most useful to the men of our century, this is the 20th century now, I should simply say, in the name of God, stop what you're doing for a moment. Stop your work and just look around you. That's good advice. I've been able to do that quite a bit walking across America from Cape Hatteras to here. I'm four miles from my house. I might get there today. To just stop and look around. And creation tells a mighty story. It points to its creator. I've seen things in creation with my own eyes that make no sense if I believe everything I've been told. By the powers that be. Can I argue with what I see with my own eyes? The apostles told the religious leaders who wanted to convince them that Jesus was just dead. He wasn't a... Hey, we can't help but preach the things we've seen and heard. Guys, if you'll stop and look around you once in a while, you'll see that even creation proves what John is hearing said here. One day it'll all be made new. It groans. I think of something the great preacher D.L. Moody said. He said, if you're saved, this earth is all the hell you'll ever see. Reflections of hell are here, but trust me, hell is not on earth. If you're saved, that's all the hell you're ever going to see. 
But if you're lost, this earth is all the heaven you'll ever see. Because this earth also points to the age to come. And that's all you're going to see if you're lost. And praise God if you're saved and born again, the closest you're going to get to hell is walking down the street in your hometown. Praise God. Or maybe some other places we've been. Some guys in here have been to South Dhaka with me in Bangladesh. That's the closest we're going to get to hell, guys. I don't know. Washington, D.C. may be a little closer today. <laughs> Keith Green, who we sang one of his songs, Rushing Wind. I used to play that on the piano. I love that song. He also wrote another song in, in, in one of his live performances. He talks about how living down here is living in a garbage can compared to the time when God makes all things new. So we can rejoice in that as we see it reflected here. Even creation teaches these things. Stop and look around you. Turn off the devices and you'll see it. Whether you see it or not, you're without excuse, Romans 1 says. Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, straight to John, write, for these words are true and faithful. John's told 12 times in the book of Revelation specifically to write something down. And he's told to write this down. In other words, are you getting this? Write it down. In chapter 1, verse 11, he that says, I am Alpha and Omega, Jesus the Christ, says to John, what you see, write it down in a book. And I want you to send it to the church. That's why Revelation was written for the church. Why in the world do we avoid it like the plague? Chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus even gave John an outline of the book. I want you to write three things, what you have seen, what the things which are the church age, chapter 2 and 3, what you have seen is chapter 1, what are 2 and 3, and the things that which shall, which shall be here after the church age, chapter 4 to the end of the book. He's told to write these things, and that's what he's done. Seven times he's told to write what Christ says to a specific church. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. He's told to write to them. We talked about how these were actual churches in John's day. They are types or representatives of different types of churches that have been throughout the church age, and they're a prophetic foreview of how the church age would unfold. We can look back now and see that in a way that those living even in the 19th or the 18th or the 17th century couldn't see. We are in Laodicea now, the rights of the people. It's all about me, what I want, what we want. Jesus told him to write these things down. In chapter 14, verse 13, when the mark of the beast is doled out, John is told to write a message to those tribulation saints. Look, guys, just go ahead and die. Blessed are they that die from this point forward because that's your rest. Don't even try to stay alive anymore. Just give it up so you can rest. When the mark is doled out. I was thinking about this earlier, or actually yesterday, I've been trying to finish reading the Bible in Spanish. I finished the New Testament long ago, and I've been in the Old Testament for a while. The Old Testament's a pretty big chunk of the Bible, guys. But I finally finished the prophet Ezekiel on Friday. Finally. And so yesterday I read Daniel chapter 1. 
And something struck me at the very end of Daniel chapter 1. It said, and Daniel continued until the first, the year, until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel, this little boy who was taken captive, continued for 70 or more years being used of God. And then I thought about how in chapter 1, Daniel and those three Hebrew children took a stand. We often think they took a stand before the king of Babylon. No. They took a stand amongst their fellow captives, their fellow princes and elites that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar to bring into his court and to nourish them up and to train them for his benefit. Now, the king fed them a diet that would defile the commandments God gave to Israel concerning their dietary restrictions. And the whole group of these captives didn't think that was a big deal. You know, look, we just need to go along to get along. Just eat it, man. It's good food. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care. You know, Romans 13, do what you're told. But Daniel and the three Hebrew children said, no, we are not going to defile ourselves. And he went to the eunuch that was in charge of them and appealed to him. And the eunuch's like, look, man, if you come before Nebuchadnezzar and you're gaunt and not well fed, I'm going to get in trouble and he's going to have my head. And Daniel said, look, we're going to trust God and obey God and we're going to trust him to make our countenance what it needs to be to protect you. Just give us 10 days. And for 10 days, they refused to violate their, their conscience when it came to what they ate. They just ate vegetables and drank water. And 10 days later, they looked in better health than their fellow Jews who said, no, nah, we haven't eaten this good in a while. And so what we saw there was Daniel and those three Hebrew children took a stand in a small matter. They would not violate their conscience before God. Therefore, when the bigger matters came, bow down before this statue, quit praying to your God, it was very easy for these same folks to take a stand at the peril of their own lives. And it, it made me think about the situation here in America or in Canada this last year. Many of us have not been able to take a stand in small matters like gathering as believers. Will we take a stand when, they, when it's deny your faith or die? There are many today who better pray to God that the rapture of the church which we teach, which I believe is biblical, is true. Because if it's not... Many who could not be faithful today in a small matter won't be faithful when they dole out the mark. They just won't. COVID-19 vaccine is not the mark of the beast. I mean, we've got, we got to be careful not to be caught up in all this stuff. The Bible says it's in the right hand or in the forehead. I don't think they're giving you shots in your right hand. Nobody gives you a shot in your right hand. But all of these things that are happening, you know, the devil rolls out the prototypes and the test runs. And everything's moving forward to a time when he makes his last-ditch effort to control the world and take as many people to hell as possible. So we need to be wary. And we need to be faithful in small things, just like Daniel, so that we can remain faithful in large things. And I don't know how I started thinking about that in studying for this message, but in Romans 14, Paul says, He that doubts is damned if he eats. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Guys, don't let anyone make you violate your conscience. 
It is dangerous to go against your conscience. Don't let, don't violate it. God will honor that. And there's a lot of people who won't violate their conscience. And one day, it'll be like, yeah, just go ahead and let them kill you. You can rest. Write. John's told to write that. Revelation 19.9, John is told, write, blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Praise God. Write that down. If you're born again, you're called to that marriage supper. God told the Philadelphian church, because you have kept the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of temptation that's coming to try the earth. Those that keep God's word are kept from that hour of tribulation. And then here, 21.5. Come on, write. Write this down. Are you getting this, John? Write it down. God doesn't just speak in visions or in dark secrets. He reveals Himself and it's been written down. We can know God's will. We can know what is right or wrong. We don't even have to turn on CNN. We ain't got to listen to Dr. Fauci. We don't have to turn on another preacher. We've got it right here because it's been written down. John's told to write and he does. Everything that John had heard and what remains at this point to be said, he writes. He immediately obeys. Write, for these words are true and faithful. True and faithful. What has been written here in Revelation is true and faithful. Now, some preachers will say, no, not true and faithful, but apocalyptic, symbolic, allegorical, figurative, confusing, hard to understand, unimportant and not relevant. But God says they're true and faithful. What's been written down is not irrelevant. Hebrews 10 is not irrelevant. Romans 1 is not irrelevant. 1 Timothy 2 about the order of things in the church is not irrelevant. It's true and it's faithful. You know, what's really sad about the American church in 2020 is that the words of Dr. Fauci have been far more important in the ears of many Christians than the words of this book of Revelation here. His words aren't true and faithful. Many of us have known that from day one. They've been exposed. He's a liar. Follow the money. But people believe known liars and yet question everything that's been proven true by Christ raising from the dead. Sheer profundity. These things are true and faithful. I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes by Henry David Thoreau. He said, rather than love, than money, than fame. A famous American author from the 18th century. Or 19th. 19th century. Rather than money, than love, than fame, give me truth. Truth was more important than love, love, money, or fame. And I just want to know the truth. I'd rather know the truth than be lied to, even if it's uncomfortable. Some truth is very uncomfortable. And if you speak it or you inquire about it, you'll lose a lot of friends. But God is true. And His words are true because they come from Him. And He cannot lie. Yes, there's something that an Almighty God cannot do. 
He cannot lie. And that's why when he says eternal life has been promised through Jesus Christ, we can trust it. We can rest in it. He can't lie. His words are faithful. That means you can bank on them. They will be fulfilled punctually and exactly. In this study, we've talked about the record and testimony of history which shows God's prophecies to be filled exactly. Now, we can look at future prophecies today and we may not be able to predict how they will be fulfilled, but looking back one day, we'll see they were fulfilled exactly like they were written. Just like Jesus Christ, over 40 prophecies fulfilled exactly as they were written in his life. God's words are true and faithful. If they are true and faithful, then they can be understood and they should be preached. In one of my very first messages on this book, as we did an introduction to the book and got into the first few chapters, the open, I mean the first few verses, the salutation of the book, Jesus says this, or it is said in verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. So blessed are those that read and hear. The word also means understand the words of this particular book, Revelation. And keep those things which are written therein. So there is a blessing specifically promised to those who read, hear, and keep what is written in Revelation. There's a blessing. So why do we avoid it? What do you mean it's too hard to understand? God says there's a blessing for those that hear it and understand it and keep it. His words are faithful. We can bank upon them. They can be understood. They should be preached. The messages to the seven churches ought to be being preached to the American church today, but we avoid it like the plague. God's word is true and faithful. Guess who also is true and faithful? Jesus, the true and faithful witness. So right here in Revelation, the word of God is called true and faithful and Christ is called the true and faithful witness. If you go back on that, this Revelation podcast, I encourage you, write these numbers down. Episode 127 and episode 128 entitled The Word of God Part 1 and The Word of God Part 2. This is where we highlight what is written. Uh, what the name that Jesus Christ has when he comes out of heaven in Revelation 19, the word of God. And we look at throughout the scriptures how the written word of God and the living word of God are spoken of with the same terminology. The things that are said of the written word of God are said of the living word of God throughout scripture. Jesus Christ, the living word of God, the written word of God, the Bible are one and the same. You can't have one without the other. You can't believe the Bible and deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And you can't follow Jesus the Messiah and deny the Bible is God's word. They go hand in hand. The faithful and true words of a faithful and true witness. Bear with me just a little more. Verse chapter 21, verse 6. And he said unto me, again, write to John, it is done. It is done. Now, this is not the words that Christ declared from the cross. It is finished. This is another word. In Greek, that was tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. Here, we don't have in the original language tetelestai. We have genomai. It is done. 
We used to have a word in Nepali when I lived in Nepal and spoke Nepali. If I wanted to know whether something was done, I'd say, Bayo? Is it done? Or if we were ready, if we were done and ready to go, Bishnu would say, Bayo. In other words, it's done. Therefore, let's go. So I understand exactly what's here. What Christ said from the cross that is finished means it is accomplished, it is paid in full. He paid for our sins in full. But here, genomai, it is done. It is fulfilled. It is through. And the sense here is what I felt, the overwhelming sense that I encountered years ago in 2004 when a year and a half after I started pedaling a bicycle from Surf City, North Carolina, I rode onto the beach at the northwest corner of Washington State. And I realized it was done. It had been done. It was finished. And it was just an overwhelming sense of relief. And it was just surreal. I'm sure I'll encounter that again when I finally walk up on and put my feet in the Pacific Ocean. It's done. It's, it's really done. That day's coming. What's long appointed is finally come. That immense task is finally over. It is done. You know, these things are said in the Scripture several times. In Ezekiel 39, God says, It is done. Once Israel is invaded by Gog and Magog and that great army from the north is turned back and overthrown, what has long been appointed is now done. In Luke 14, 22, the servant said to his master who was told to go out and invite the friends and family members to the wedding feast. And they, would, they made excuse. And so the householder said, well, go into the highways and hedges and invite anybody that will come. And the servant came back and said, it is done. I've done it. I've gone into the highways and hedges just as you commanded. It is done as thou hast commanded. I hope one day to lift my face heavenward with my feet wet in the salt water of the Pacific and look to God and say, it is done as you have commanded. That's my desire is just to look at God and be able to say, Lord, I've done what you've commanded me to do. We see this genomai there in Luke 14. We see it again in Revelation 16, 17. When the seventh vial of God's wrath, seven seal judgments, the seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgment, the seventh trumpet is the seven vials. When that final vial is poured out, there's a voice. It is done. It's accomplished. And then here, God's wrath is accomplished against this world when that last vial is poured out. And then here, it is done. God's plan and purpose for this present creation. And then we get to go forward into the ages to come and learn everything there is to know about our Lord and about our God and about His love for us. Praise God. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm not going to talk much about this. This is God all in all. Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega there in the early part of Revelation. Now God all in all is saying it. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the, first letter, the last letter of that alphabet. In Hebrew, it's the Aleph Tav. The Aleph Tav. 
the first and the last letter. The Aleph Tav appears in the Old Testament. It's not translated. It is a direct object marker in Hebrew. It marks the object so you don't pronounce it or translate it. But it's all over the Old Testament. It's almost as if the name of God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is all over the Old Testament. Because He is the Alpha and Omega. Here, God all in all, the Father, Alpha and Omega. This is the same claim that Jesus the Son made in 111, and it is said of the Father in chapter 1, verse 4. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. He is God, and we worship Him as God. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And now, this declaration, this personal declaration becomes a personal invitation. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And just because the personal invitation has been misused in recent years in Baptist churches, don't throw it out. Because here we have a personal invitation. God invites us to come to Him. We should invite people to come to Him. A personal invitation, verse 6, the second part of the verse. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. A personal invitation. Come, and I will give you that thirst, the water of the fountain of life, freely. That word freely is real important. And you know why? Because it's the first word of God that was ever omitted or misquoted in the history of the world. And therefore, it is the great stumbling block, just like Spurgeon spoke of that Matthew read this morning. It was the first word of God ever misspoken or omitted. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Just bear with me. I, I, I want to get to the end of this verse. And just have a little mercy. And remember, we started a little late. Do I need to clap and wake some people up? Do we need an intermission? Lunch is coming, guys. We don't have to go to the buffet. The buffet lines are open now, but we don't have to go. My goodness, on the way to church this morning, this is two Sundays in a row, I couldn't believe the line I saw at Hardy's and Bojangles. Wrapped around out into the street on a Sunday morning. Is it because that's what people do on Sunday mornings now? Or is it because there's only one person working in there and they can't keep up? I don't know. It's very strange. We don't have to worry about that. This is what the Lord commanded the man. Chapter 2 verse 16 in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. You've got all you need. You can freely eat this fruit from any tree in this garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then you get over to chapter 3. The serpent comes along. Yay, God hath said. I know what he said. But a better translation would say this. Or he really meant this. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She left out a pretty important word there. Freely. The first word of God ever misquoted. God says, I've given you all you need. You can eat freely as much as you want. 
This tree is here. You're not to eat of it. And she, by removing that nature of God's salvation, made it something else. And she was easily deceived. Freely is the great stumbling block for many. Jesus spoke of Himself being the living water to the woman at the well in Samaria and says, I will give you living water. And she says, where is this water? This well is deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us his well? And she says, if any, if he can, any man comes to me and drinks, I will give him freely and it will bubble up in him like a fountain of life everlasting. And then he told her, go get your husband. She said, I, I'm not married. He said, you're right, you're not married. You've had like five husbands and the one you've got now isn't your husband. And then she knew he was the Messiah because he knew everything about her. But the water of life, Salvation in Christ is freely offered, freely received. Paul says at least three times in Romans 5, he refers to it as a free gift. A free gift. And that's the great stumbling block. It was a great stumbling block for the Jews. Paul said this in Romans chapter 10. Here's the great problem of the Jew. For they being ignorant, verse 3, of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They substituted God's righteousness for their own righteousness and rejected the Messiah, the great stumbling block. But we need to be very careful we don't point a finger at the Jew because we here in America have spurned it. We've stumbled at the stumbling stone. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of Jews in Israel today. I know for a fact I've been there. I've traveled. I've spoken to many. They speak favorably of God. They believe in God. But here's the problem. Very few see any need or any reason to call upon Him for anything. And that is exactly where we are as a church in America. We speak favorably of Him. But we don't call upon Him. We don't see any reason to call upon it. And many will never get out of their carriage and condescend to take of the water of life freely. Isn't the water fountain today as it exists today an incredible picture of this? Most water fountains were turned off during the COVID thing. And it didn't matter because people won't ever use them anyway. But we have a water fountain upstairs in the building where our, our martial arts dojo meets. And I was up there the other day. And I was just so thankful for that water fountain. I bent over and pushed the button and it was cold water that came out. A lot, I, don't, I don't mind drinking out of a water fountain, guys. I'll usually let it run for a few seconds. But I'll drink out of a water fountain and it just hit me how people won't condescend to drink out of a water fountain. You can be thirsty as can be and your bottle of water can be hot and you can be out jogging. There's a water fountain there, but God forbid you... Lean down and get cold water because you might get germs. Getting that how we are spiritually with the free gift of salvation. It's a free gift. And here we have an invitation from God. We have an invitation. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the water of life freely. Why is this invitation stated right here? Why? Why do we suddenly go from a declaration to an invitation? I'll tell you why. 
Because God is getting ready to talk about the new Jerusalem. He's getting ready to give John a personal tour through one of the angels. In detail, he's going to show us the Lamb's wife and the home of the redeemed. So God pauses and says, come and get it. This is for you if you will just take and drink. It reminds me of what God said through Ezekiel the prophet. I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want to see the wicked repent and be made right. Second Peter, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here we see that God, not willing that any should perish. You're getting ready to see the new Jerusalem in detail. Come and get it. Whoever is athirst, come and drink freely. God is making one last appeal. And we're going to see it again at the very end of the book when we're translated back to John's day and Patmos. God gives one final invitation here and in chapter 22. There's a time for that last invitation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, And I will be his God and he shall be my son. The word freely was rejected by Eve. And therefore the tree of life is no longer free. It's no longer free. Only those that do God's commandments in the millennium get to eat of the tree of life. It's no longer free. But the water is still free. The water of life is free. And that water which followed Israel and provided them that nourishment in the desert, Paul said that rock, that water was Christ. It's free. Even if you're the last person on earth that even believes there is a God, that water's still free for you if you'll take it and drink. Just like the water in that water fountain. But who are the overcomers? We've talked about this extensively because in the letters to the seven churches, he that overcomes. Jesus tells true believers, those that overcome in the messages to the seven churches, that they're going to inherit the tree of life that's no longer free for everyone, but that's going to be for the overcomers. They're going to escape the second death. They're going to eat of the hidden manna and be given a white stone with a new name. They're going to have power over the nations during the millennium. God's going to give them the morning star. Jesus is going to clothe them in white raiment. And their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. The overcomers will be a pillar in the temple of God. They'll have residence in the new Jerusalem. And they'll sit with Christ on His throne. Great promises to those who overcome in the letters to the seven churches. But who is He that overcomes? We talk of a Christian as someone who prayed a prayer and repeated it and then went about their business. But a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, is an overcomer. That means he doesn't walk a distance and then quit and go home. And John tells us this. The same John who writes down here, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I promise I'm almost done. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 4 and 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. If you're born again, you'll overcome the world. You won't capitulate. It's the fruit, it's the proof. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? Who is the one that overcomes? 
Who is this person? And we get a clear answer. But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. The overcomers are those that drink of the water of life freely and they don't believe in God. They believe God and they trust in what God says about Jesus Christ and His shed blood, His death, burial, and His resurrection. They believe to it. They cling to it. They drink of that water freely and then by default, not by their own power, but by default, by the power of the Spirit that dwells in them, they overcome. True believers are overcomers. Guys, the proof that Jesus Christ changed my life when I was 17 years old in 1993 isn't that I repeated a prayer or said a prayer at an altar in a church. I can show you where the church is, a rural town in Florida. The proof that that was real is that even today, all these years later, and by God's grace, I'm living a life of repentance and faith and trust in the water of life, Jesus the Christ. And by His power, I've overcome the world. And that is the same testimony for many of you. That is the proof. The fruit is the proof. Salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. But we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to bear fruit. They're one and the same, and it all is by the power of God. True believers, the elect, the selection. Remember that imagery I gave you about the bicycle race? It's all crowded at the beginning, and people are maneuvering for rank and trying to draft off of other people. But when the road starts going uphill, all of that other tends to fade away, and the few riders that are left, that's the selection, the overcomers, the ones that finish. Those are the overcomers. He that believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you believe in Jesus the Christ and you are trusting Him, then you're an overcomer. Stop worrying about how you're going to overcome and trust God. Let Him do it in you. And He that overcomes doesn't just inherit eternal life. He inherits all things. All things are ours in Christ Jesus. Not not just here, not just in the coming kingdom, but in the new creation. They will be ours just as a son possesses of his father. And I'll close with this. He that overcomes, chapter 21, verse 7, shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Over in Romans, Paul tells us the exact same thing. Romans 8. Let's close with this promise today. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Not just heirs of God the Father, but joint heirs with Christ our brother. If so be that we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified together. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that if we suffer, we will reign with Him. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. It's by the faith of Christ that we live. And it's by His faith that we will inherit all things, that we will overcome. Let that be your motivation today as we struggle to exist in this country that's turned its back to God instead of its face. And these precious promises we can lay hold on. One day it will be done. 
One day all things will be made new. We can drink of that water of life freely now so that one day we can inherit all things. That's good news. That's good news. That personal exhortation continues. That same voice keeps speaking for one more verse. It's not done. So we're going to break here at verse 7 today. But that same voice that is speaking from the throne isn't done yet. Verse 8, but, great personal invitation, great good news, great things to rejoice about, but, the terrible disjunctive conjunction. And let that word but just sink down. We won't read any further. I want you to remember something. What has been done for you, salvation in Jesus Christ, for everybody in here, is available to you. Whosoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. It's available, but my friend, it's not automatic. Available doesn't mean automatic. God commands us to repent of our sins and believe upon Jesus Christ. It is free. It is free for all who will drink. For anyone who will get down out of the carriage and drink from the water fountain, that cold water is free. There's no limit, as much as you want. But, it's not cheap. That word but right here highlights that salvation is available, but it's not automatic. It's free, but it's not cheap. It costs he that sits on the throne the blood of his only begotten son. Let us remember those things. Let us be a witness for it as we go forth. So next week we'll look at verse 8. Maybe we'll get through the verse or maybe I'll focus on those first three words because they seem to be pretty relevant to the time we're living. So I hope this has been a blessing. We're now going to pray over the meal. And for those visiting with us, we always eat together. So you're welcome to join us uh, freely. Whosoever wants to eat this meal that has been prepared, eat it freely. Yes, guests go first. Kids, remember y'all are in the back of the line. Guests go first. Preacher needs to be up there near the front too. He's tired. So that would be nice. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for your word that has been spoken today. We're grateful for the worship and the time of prayer and the fellowship we've already enjoyed. Father, we are so thankful for your promises that are true and faithful. It is the Alpha and the Omega who declares such things, the beginning and the end. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Father, we look forward to the day when you make all things new and when the things of this earth that cause pain and sorrow and suffering are passed away. We're thankful for that water of life, Jesus the Christ, we can drink from freely. And we're thankful that in Christ we can inherit all things. What does this world have to offer? Help us to be like those saints of old mentioned there in Hebrews 11. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. They that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they have been mindful of the country of whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they seek a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Lord, we, may we be that way. May we declare such things. May we live as strangers and pilgrims because of these precious promises. We confess them. We acknowledge them, Lord. Give us the strength by the Holy Spirit to overcome this world and to keep our faith and to cherish it like a man who goes out and finds a treasure 
buried in a field. He'll go out and give everything he has to buy that field. Bless the food we're about to eat. May it give us strength and nourishment. May our fellowship strengthen our souls and our spirits. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.